Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Glad to have you here in our service this morning. Appreciate so much you being here. Hope you had a great time with family and friends over the holidays. Uh, as a church, we're looking forward to 2016. We had a great 2015. We uh, averaged for the first time over 1,800 on Sunday mornings this past year. 1818 was our total. It's a great landmark for us to get past it. Just over Christmas, the Christmas week, we had over 3,400 in our services that week, so we're thankful for that as well. We had 101 baptisms last year, and we had 393 people indicate that they were trusting Christ for the first time last year. So thankful for that. 393, by far the most we've ever had in our church's history. And uh, so looking forward to the end of the year, too, financially strong. Thank you. Thank you for giving. Thank you for serving. Thank you for praying. Thank you for all you do. We're also thankful, obviously, to God. He's the only reason uh, that lives are getting changed. We know that. We're thankful to him for that. Looking forward to what he's got for us in the coming year. Uh, looking forward to getting to our new building here before too long. And, and God just continue to bless our, our ministry here. Um, we do have, as a, as a church... Um, Boy, Jay thought things were going bad. My iPad just went out on me. <laughs> Hopefully this thing works. Hey, uh, but we're looking for, we are looking forward to a, a, a new year together and so all that God does to us. And we've got a new year, a new series starting today. And talking about uh, what God has revealed about himself. And uh, we're going to go and just say this. There are a few assumptions that we are going to make through this series. First of all. We're going with the fact that God is real. We're making that assumption, plenty of evidence for that. We've talked a lot about many of those proofs in the past. So proving his existence isn't really the focus on this series. We also believe that he's revealed himself. As Kevin was saying last week, it only makes sense if he exists that he would reveal himself. So we believe he has done that. And we believe he has done that in scripture. If you, if you question that, I'd encourage you to do some research into the reliability of scripture. <laughs> Plenty of evidence for that as well. We've also talked about that many times here. Historical, archeological, manuscript evidence. So you really do owe it to yourself if you've got any questions about that, just to, to look into that. Don't just go with what typically are old sort of worn out arguments against scripture. But again, not the purpose of this series. Instead, since we believe God has revealed himself in his word, we want to look in the coming weeks at some of what he says about himself. And today we're talking about the fact that God has revealed that he is one, but that he is three in one. So we're talking about the Trinity, not the easiest of topics. Uh, maybe I should go follow the direction of a guy named Elric, who was a 12th century monk. After he, after he botched a sermon on the Trinity, he took a vow of silence <laughs> for the rest of his life. I know some of you are hoping I will do that. But <laughs> obviously, there's some things that we can't fully explain about the Trinity, but there are plenty of things that we can, and we want to talk about some of those today. On the other hand, there are people in their attempt to handle what can be a difficult concept tend to make a couple of mistakes. First, there's those who, since they can't explain the Trinity, they simply deny it. Uh, it doesn't make sense to them. It's interesting to me that that skeptics and cults both do this. Interesting that those two groups that would disagree on most everything agree on this one thing. 
And typically what they'll say is, well, the idea of the Trinity isn't developed in, for several hundred years after the time of Christ. And they'll throw that out there. I think a lot of times just repeating what they've heard, not really knowing what, what the reason for that is. But where that's come from is what's called the Council of Nicaea in 325, when a group of church leaders are together, and the doctrine of the Trinity was a big part of the discussion. And, and skeptics, or cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, look at, at that and they say, see, the idea of the Trinity, it didn't exist until hundreds of years later. It's all made up. It's all man's idea. This is where it all came from. But what they don't understand is the Trinity wasn't something new in the church's teaching. It wasn't it at all. They were, they were talking about it and, and just confirming what they had always taught because they were reacting to a guy named Arius who had come along who was denying the Trinity in his teaching and saying that Jesus was inferior to the Father. So these guys were there reaffirming what they had always believed in reaction to Arius. It wasn't something new. So the whole argument that the doctrine of Trinity was something that didn't come into existence until that point in time is really the result of not knowing the historical context, not knowing what was going on in the church. But that's one issue people will point out. Sometimes they'll also point out that the word Trinity isn't found in the scriptures. But that proves nothing. It's like sort of if you're in a fantasy football, you know, there's a show on the NFL Network where they they talk about um, what's happened that week in fantasy football. And, one, and, and they have a segment where they talk about guys who aren't usually on anybody's team because they usually don't make points. And uh, they talk about these guys that that week, for some reason, they made a bunch of points. And after they talk about the guy for a little bit and tell what he did, then they end the segment with... That helps no one. Well, to say that the word Trinity is in the Bible, that helps no one. It doesn't prove your argument. It does nothing for you because we can look through Scripture. We, we can see the fact that even the word Bible isn't in Scripture. It doesn't prove anything. The word may not be there. The concept is all over. The concept is everywhere in Scripture. We have words like omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence that we use to describe the attributes of God. Those are words aren't in the scriptures either, but still we use them. It makes, doesn't make the point to say because the word's not there is an absolutely invalid argument. So one mistake is to deny the existence of the Trinity. The other is to try to redefine the Trinity. And I think people sometimes do that they try to redefine it because they want to be able to fully explain what they say they believe. So they're looking for some, some way to do it. So let me try to come up with some idea that makes sense to me. And so with the Trinity, they're dealing with this, the mystery of the Trinity. Instead of enjoying the wonder of it, they try to come up with an answer that gives a full explanation. That's where a teaching like modalism comes in. And I talked about this not too long ago, but just want to go over it again because some sincere Christians fall into this error without even realizing that it's heresy. Modalism basically goes like this. They say, okay, there's one God that reveals himself at different times in three different modes or three different persons. Now, if you're not listening carefully, that sounds sort of okay. But you've got to watch what it means. And it's, and it's a view, again, that sometimes Christians fall into. But basically it's saying this, 
God is a single person who first revealed himself in the mode of the Father in the Old Testament. And then when Jesus comes in the New Testament and takes on flesh, becomes a man, the incarnation, they say he reveals himself then in the mode of the Son. And then when Jesus goes back to heaven, he comes in the mode of the Spirit. These modes are never simultaneous. So in other words, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit never all exist at the same time, only one after the other. So in modalism, you don't have three distinct persons. You have one person being revealed in three different ways. Wow, I think they've got a problem, don't they? They've got a problem with the story of the baptism of Jesus, right? Remember how that ended? Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased problems right obviously you've got Jesus there he's just been baptized and at the same time you've got the Holy Spirit descending and landing on him and you've got the Father speaking from heaven so all three are appearing at one time there's no separate modes there modalism can't be right it's just another inaccurate attempt to handle the Trinity what we do know and what scripture clearly shows us about the Trinity or not as a number of things. We know scripture clearly presents God, this trinity of persons consisting of one essence. God is numerically one. That's the truth that marked Judaism and continue to mark Christianity. In Judaism, they have what's known as the Shema. It's this, it's this prayer that serves as a centerpiece of their morning and evening prayers. And that first verse encapsulizes the monotheism that marks both Judaism and Christianity. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Simple as it is. Man, we're so glad. We don't have a bunch of gods we're trying to satisfy. No, he's one. So glad we know exactly who it is we serve, and he's told us exactly what he wants for, from us and for us. It's great news for us that he is one. But we also know within that single divine essence, there are three individual persons. Each of those three persons are distinct from the other. So while they're one, Jesus is not the same person as the Father. And we know that because, for instance, they speak to each other. They have their own wills. Think about the baptism again. The father talking about the son. In verse 17 we just read, Behold, a voice of the heavens said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's speaking about his son. You have two distinct persons. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed and he said in Luke 22, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Two Person, two different wills, the son has a will, the father has a will, two distinct individuals. That can be said about the Holy Spirit as well. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. John 16, 13, you listen to the pronouns that are used of him. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, 
He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He, he, his, he. The Holy Spirit is clearly a person, the third person of the Trinity. So the correct teaching is there's only one God who's in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each is not the same person as the other. But not only are they distinct, they, we also know they're also each God. Not only is the Father God, but also the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, is God. He's co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. He's not just a good man. He's not just a prophet. No, Jesus is God. John 1.1 tells us, in the beginning was the word, that word, words, talking about Jesus, referring to him. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Un unbelievers, they can do all kinds of translation gymnastics that they want to, but no reputable Greek scholar would translate that verse to read any other way than John declaring Jesus to be God. And then Jesus clearly states to himself in John 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. The Jews clearly understood what Jesus was talking about there. Those who were there immediately, what did they do? They pick up stones to stone him. Why? Because they saw that as a false statement. They saw that as Jesus claimed to be God himself. They're saying, no, that's not it. We're gonna, that's a blasphemous statement since you're not God, so we're going to kill you. Jesus clearly making the claim to be God. He affirms it, affirms it here because, the, because they understood culturally. They remembered the story of what happened with Moses. Remember, Moses was all nervous about going back. And, and he's wondering, what, what if the people don't believe that you sent me? And God said to him, tell them, I am sent you. So Jesus picks that up and affirms here that he is the great I am. He is God. And we can look at many Many other statements showing the deity of Jesus in the Bible. So the Father's God, Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is also God. The Holy Spirit is the all-knowing, all-seeing, ever-present God. You remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 in the, in, in the early church. And what was going on there, the people were facing real struggles, difficulties. And so everyone was voluntarily selling their land and their homes and bringing the money in to help meet some of the needs. Along come Ananias and Sapphira, and they've got a different idea. They're going to sell their land and then come in and act like they're bringing in all the money, but they're going to lie about it. They're not really going to bring it all in. And so Peter confronts Ananias, and he said this, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? You could have done with it what you wanted to do with it. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Hey, did you catch that? Ananias, you lied to the Holy Spirit, which is lying to God. Peter is clear there. We see other scriptural evidence that the Spirit is God. We're told that the Word of God is, in fact, words inspired by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit 
spoke from God. So men who are writing the word of God move, are moved by the Holy Spirit. And now these men are speaking from God. Why? Because they've got the words that they're writing from God's spirit. As Christians, we're called the temple of God. Why? Because the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit lives in us. Those who are born of the Spirit are also said to be born of God. See, you go on and on. There's no doubt about it. The Bible presents the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, as God. So we know we've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we also know that while they're equal, they have specific responsibilities, different responsibilities within the Godhead. The Son, for instance, is sent from the Father. 1 John 4 says, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So the Father has a mission for the Son. He sends the Son to be the Savior of the world. And then the Son, who goes because the Father sends him, now becomes obedient to the Father. Even though he's equal with the Father, he is following the Father's will and the Father's command. And he goes to be the Savior of the world. And then in Philippians 2, we're told being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He took that role that the Father had for him, different roles, but he did it and accomplished it. And we know that Jesus then sent the Spirit and the Spirit's role is different than the Son's. The Spirit's role is to point back to the Son. Jesus said this in John 15, when the Helper comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me. So he's got a specific role within the Godhead. Jesus was going to send him. He's the Spirit, and then the Spirit was going to come from the Father, sent by the Son, to come and then testify to, about Jesus. So his role is to point everybody back to Jesus. So, again, we know all this. We know the Bible presents the Trinity as a reality. We know that while God is one, each person of the Trinity is distinct. We know that each person of the Trinity is, in fact, God. And we know that each person has various roles. We can see all that. If we wanted to, we could go into more. But the reality is here, as we're looking at this, we've got all this great truth. But we can't fully explain the uniqueness of how three equals one. It's a wonder. And skeptics may ridicule us for believing this but we celebrate it. I mean, that's our God, right? Our God is beyond us. We can't flick. We, there's so much of it. Everything he is and everything he does is beyond us. We think about simple little phrases like God is love. And we say, okay, that's true. God is love. It's great. We, and, and we think oh, that's, that's a nice phrase to be able to say, a nice truth to be, know that he loves us. We don't fully grasp that. His love is perfect. We, we, and we can't fully understand that kind of love, can we? A perfect love? It's beyond us. I mean, we just saw 
just went through the holidays. We spent time with family and friends, hopefully, that we all love. I, I love my wife and kids dearly, but my love is imperfect. You know, sometimes I do selfish things. I take the last piece of ham. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I, my, so for me to think of a God who loves me without fail, I can't explain that. Think of his power. Uh, infinite, unlimited power. Can't fully explain that. He's beyond us. Think about his holiness. I mean, absolute holiness. You can't explain that. I think someday when, when we get to heaven, I think that there's going to be a lot that sort of blows our minds, but to me, What's going, if there's anything that stands out above everything, it's going to be seeing God's holiness, experiencing that, knowing that, understanding that in a way we've never understood before. It's going to blow our minds. And the, and the other thing that's going to blow our minds is in light of that holiness, his grace to us. In light of his perfect holiness, which is redundant, I know, but perfect holiness that he would still extend grace to us. It's going to be amazing, isn't it? We can't, we can't, as we talk about grace, we sing about amazing grace, but we can't fully explain how wonderful his grace is. It's beyond us. So it's no surprise that the Trinity is beyond us because that's the way our God is. He's beyond us. And we celebrate that. Because all of us, believers and unbelievers, have a sense of the need for something that's beyond us, something that's bigger than us. Well, that's exactly what the triune God we serve provides. The Trinity tells us of our relationship to the Father as his children. Where, where Hindus see deity as some disembodied cosmic force behind everything and Muslims see God as an angry master we know God as father and we know his son Christ as our brother and there's nothing better than being adopted into that family and when we're sealed with the Holy Spirit who marks us as his and who enables us to live as God would have us to live Romans 5 provides an example of how those three persons of our one God work together. It says this in verse 1. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Do, do you see the Trinity at work in there? Paul is telling us how we are justified with God the Father by faith. Justified is when we're declared righteous by him. It just means to be made in alignment with, like the, like the margins on your computer. When, when we are justified by God, 
with God, we are brought into alignment. We are made right with God by faith. And how is that done? We are justified by faith through God the Son. God the Son acts as an intercessor for us with God the Father. It's through His grace that we're able to stand before God the Father as justified. And then it's through the Holy Spirit that this grace is applied to our lives. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in changing us and bringing us into relationship with Him. And so we're thankful. We're thankful to know the one true God as our loving Father. And we praise Him. We praise Him because He's our Creator, He's our King, He's our Shepherd, He's the Preserver of all things. We praise Him for His love and power and wisdom and justice that are displayed throughout creation. All these things and more are worthy of our praise. As for God the Son, we praise Him. We praise Him for His obedience to live as a servant and to suffer and die on the cross as our Savior. We praise Him for conquering the grave by rising from the dead. We praise Him that He made eternal life with God the Father possible. And as for God the Holy Spirit, he, we can praise Him because His presence with us never ends. He has sealed us for all eternity. He is the one who reveals the word of God to us so that we not only be, can become Christians, but we can grow and become faithful servants. It's because of this God, the one that we serve, the triune God who is beyond us, that we, and the, the one God that we know and serve, that we can look forward to a new year. And no matter what is going on in this crazy mixed up world of ours, no matter what is happening, maybe in our lives personally, little issues, struggles, problems that we deal with, sometimes um, incredible pain, we can still look forward with hope and assurance. Why? Because the God who's beyond us is in control and he loves us and has us in his hands. Our God, three in one. It's an honor to know him and to serve him. But if you don't know him, you can take a step of faith right now, seeing where you're at right now. No one has to know at this point. You can take that step quietly and enter into a relationship with a God who's beyond you. He can change your life.